You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Welcome back to PGAP, the podcast where growing infinitely on a finite planet is pretty dumb. I'm your co-host, Michael Bayliss, and I'm joined with Mark Allen. How are you, Mark? I'm good. How are you? Fantastic. Now, before we launch into this episode, I thought I might just share um, a little bit of local activism we've been doing recently. Good idea. As You may be aware, if you listen to Season 4 and our episode on WA Community Groups, we interviewed Annabelle Pauly from the Friends of Yakimaya. Now, two Sundays ago, we ventured into the Yakimaya Forest because the Friends of Yakimaya were organising a walk in the forest with Manang man, Uncle Larry Blight, who gave us a tour and showed us like the relevance of um, many of the trees and uh, the cultural relevance of that area which is one of the few remnant native bushlands left around the Albany Township. It was a very powerful moment for me. I remember Larry talking about one of his totem animals being the parrot and we were graced by some visiting uh, red-tailed black parrots at the end of the walk. And that was hugely just a stunning moment. Yeah, it really finished the walk off beautifully. It just really brings back home why we do this work and why we continue to do what we do. We do it for the trees, we do it for the animals, we do it for the foliage, we do it for the fungi. Yeah, and and that's right. And it was a really good opportunity to reconnect at a really deep level, very grounding, because a lot of the work we do is very wordy. Coming from a European background, I could connect with Larry on the level from which I've learned, which is deep ecology. And I found that by Larry talking about certain trees and bushes and their uses in Manang culture, drew me deeper into the present moment. It was like a deep ecology meditation. It really brought me into the microcosm of the forest. I wasn't just looking at the, at the trees, but really connecting right down to a ground level. And that really took me out of that space of language and really into that deep presence where everything around me just seemed absolutely perfect and absolutely as it should be. And that gave me a greater sense of connection, a much greater feeling that we need to protect this land. And for me, I think as activists, we do need to take the opportunity to work with people to reconnect at that level and the First Nations people are so good at doing that and of course obviously reconnecting to First Nations culture. This is why I feel the voice is so important even though the cynical part of me feels as though it may just be there as a facade to make it look like the government are doing the right thing because obviously the the growthists and the economists are the ones who have the real power it's still an important symbolic step forward that we embrace the voice. I do worry greatly that there is um, a backlash against the voice for all the wrong reasons at this uh, crucial time. 
you've very well done pulled together many threads of that walk and <laughs> two days later we had to be back in mind because there was a council meeting it was one of those times and I haven't felt this in recent memory where I allowed myself just a little glimmer of optimism because the community sentiment was overwhelmingly in the support of protecting this forest from development it was really really good to see it was and, and there were first nations people there speaking on behalf of the forest people from all backgrounds all cultures all together in unison standing up and saying to the council that this last fragment of valuable forest needs to be protected it's absolutely crucial um, especially with the way the world is going and obviously we will delve more into that <laughs> with our guests so I bring this up not just to share what um, we've been doing recently but also to bring to past and the present and the possible future and by the future of PGAP um, I went up to Uncle Larry at the end of the walk and was like should I ask him for an interview so I Okay, I'll ask him. And he said yes. That's fantastic. So we're still, you know, talking the logistics. Yes. But expect a potential future interview from Uncle Larry Blight, which I'm really looking forward to. Me too. It's going to be a fantastic episode. Really, really looking forward to that. But until then, we're in the present. We are. And all this talking about, you know, the community fighting against development proposals is a really good segue, I believe, into our next guest for this episode, Kate Booth. Kate Booth, a fellow town planner. Who covers insurgent planning and collapse as well uh, during our discussion. Now, I've always seen urban planning and uh, collapse as two very different things <laughs> but in this episode we tie that all together. Kate Booth is a town planner and a planning lecturer in the University of Tasmania. I was drawn to Kate through her connection to Town Planning Rebellion and the fact that Kate is, I guess if you had a spectrum of degrowthers you would have the, the very optimistic um, degrowthers at one end who thinks that we just need to change from a GDP-based society and everything will generally be okay, all the way down to people who say that collapse is inevitable and we don't know what will come after collapse, but it's going to be a, a radically different world to what we're in now. And um, Kate's more at that end of the spectrum and it's really good to connect with people at that end of the spectrum and to sort of understand, get a broader idea of the kind of uncertain world we're entering into. So, yeah, really looking forward to talking to Kate, and this should be a very interesting conversation. Kate Booth, welcome to PGAP. How are you today? Good, thank you. Um, hello to both of you and thank you for having me on this afternoon. Thanks for being here, Kate. Really appreciate it. Now, firstly, give the listeners just a little bit of a snippet about yourself as well as your interests and passions. Okay, I'm an Associate Professor in Human Geography at the University of 
Tasmania. I've come to this role or position from a very diverse background. So I started activism as a teenager, influenced by my parents doing forest activism and activism to protect wild places in Tasmania, then moved into a variety of roles and positions working for national parks because that was my passion. Um, enrolled in a university course focused on ecology because I'm really interested in the interrelations and interdependencies that all life holds on earth. So that was kind of the grounding of, of how I ended up in the activism space and uh, eventually academia as well. I still hold that interest in interconnectivity, but it's kind of broadened from the ecological to include the social and economic and political as well. So not just focused on natural systems, but how everything hangs together. You said you work at the University of Tasmania. I didn't realise you uh, lived in Tasmania. And I say that partly because two years ago, PGAP was live on tour around Tasmania and we interviewed some amazing people. Wish we could have met you in person um, at that time, but it's great to have you virtually and online. That's one of the few good things about technology is it allows that interviews anytime, anyplace. Now, your biography describes you as an activist academic uh, with focus areas including socio-equity, societal collapse and urban and regional planning. I haven't come across too many people that are both in the camps of urban planning and societal collapse. It's quite a unique combination, if you don't mind me saying. But I'm curious of your journey to arriving to this point and also to what extent that the university is open to ideas around collapse and degrowth because my experience of tertiary education sector is that that's not always the case, that they're so open to unorthodox viewpoints. Yeah, that, that is unfortunately correct, though I feel very lucky um, at the University of Tasmania that we have progressive leadership within the university, open to um, new ideas and advancements and definitely support, from my perspective, supports intellectual freedom. So Tasmania, I think, is, is lucky in that regard. But I came to this, this mix of things, <laughs> partly because of my activist background, but also the interest in ecology and interconnectivity. Over a period of time, recognising that we are so interconnected. This was a realisation decades ago that if we didn't change dramatically what we were doing, how society functioned, how many people assumed the relationship with the natural world um, happened, if we didn't change that, then we were going to be in really big trouble. And I think it was in my 20s I read Jared Diamond's Collapse and I actually couldn't finish reading it um, because I realised that's where we were heading, into some form of collapse or breakdown because we were literally ripping the life support system or hacking the tree of life at the base by the way our economic system worked and um, some parts of our political system and, and, and society was running. So that was the awareness of collapse then. But because I was quite active, I wasn't concerned that it was about to happen. <laughs> you know, 
don't have to worry about that for decades. And then as time went past, as I'm sure many people listening to this know and you guys know, things haven't changed. In fact, many of the things that we were concerned about in the 70s and 80s and 90s have actually got worse. Infinite growth on a finite planet, as that has been pursued with great gusto um, and continues to be, even at this point in time. So following some climate activism that I was involved with and then the pandemic started was this opportunity to kind of take a bit of time and realise that that concern that I had had about collapse when I was younger, this is now. I guess I came to that side of it from that perspective. Now, in terms of how that fits in with my academic life and work, I did my PhD on sense of place, particularly thinking through some environmental philosophy and how that works or didn't work in in cities because a lot of environmental philosophy is focused on the importance of wild places rather than towns and cities. But as I think it's over half the world population now lives in urban areas, that struck me as important to think about what those philosophies may mean in the built environment. And after my PhD, I was keen to enter an academic career. If you show some propensity for research, you'll get picked up by on other people's research projects for a period of time, you know, often casually employed or fixed term. And one of the projects I got picked up on to do some work on was insurance in a changing climate. So house and contents insurance, how that works or doesn't work in relation to escalating natural disasters because of climate change. Now, there are increasingly common calls for interventions into insurance and insurability because of a potential collapse in insurance. So there you have that connection, that pathway through the insurance research and that raising concern about collapse with that background of ecological um, climate collapse as well. So I'm actually in a process at the moment of moving my research more into the collapse space based on on what I've been doing in terms of insurance. And the planning side of it, from my perspective, house and contents insurance underpins the built environment in so so many ways. All different types of insurance enable the built environment. From my perspective, um, looking at insurance makes sense in terms of urban planning and design. It's one of the things that sustains urban areas for many people and sustains many households. So there's an obvious connection for me there, though it's not obvious in urban planning practice. Insurance is seen as an outlying consideration. Um, I would see it more, more central. So I started teaching in the planning space, um, I think it was in 2016, urban and regional planning. I've moved the regional planning to look more closely at climate change and how we can think about different ways of doing planning, different framings that can inform how we plan and why we plan in the context of climate change. That includes teaching students about degrowth, um, market-based economics approaches to climate change, Um, decolonisation and things like the Green New Deal and getting students to think through planning differently in that context. That's a fantastic approach that you're taking and I love the way you've integrated so much into your work 
One thing you, you talked about insurance, and it's actually very interesting because they're continuing to build and provide so-called land releases into floodplains and to high risk bushfire areas still. And I often wonder how people are going to get insurance on these new developments over time when they're continuing to release land. Every day that goes by, especially in the last few weeks, the, the data coming out now is, is really starting to frighten me. I've, at an intellectual level, I've known that collapse is an almost certainty, but it's now, I'm now feeling it beyond an intellectual level. I'm feeling it at a cellular level, at an emotional level. It's, it's creating emotional responses of, of deep grief that I've, I've never had before. And for me, it's like, well, where does town planning rebellion go from here? Because we're almost certainly going to be going towards collapse. But I, I feel that talking about post-growth doesn't have to be opposites to talking about collapse. The two can go together. Can, can talking about post-growth be a conduit into talking about collapse? And can the two go together? Oh, I think definitely, because from my perspective, collapse is a process, not a switch. So it's not like we're all going to wake up tomorrow and everything's disintegrated or disintegrating you know we don't wake up dead tomorrow it's a process um, and some people argue and I, I'm in this camp that it's it started decades ago um, in terms of ecological and climate um, collapse the fact that you know we've been in what's called overshoot which is using and polluting more than the earth can sustain and absorb we've been doing that for decades how it maps on to post-growth or degrowth is that it's planning for that decline, that shrinkage. There's lots of words you can you can use. Simplification, unraveling, breakdown. There's a period that we're now in. Some of us are very fortunate that we're we're still living good, comfortable lives, but there are people around the world that aren't, and there's more and more people around the world that aren't. So planning at, at the moment is ill-equipped to deal with this descent and, and decline, but it will be forced to simply because that's where we're, we're heading. So totally agree with you, Mark, about planning being based on um, the idea of infinite growth on a finite planet. It's very pro-development, um, how it's developed. It has great roots in terms of lifting people. This is the Western roots of planning and differently in different cultures and parts of the world, but the Western roots of planning were about lifting people out of the absolutely dire situations during the Industrial Revolution as all these people moved into cities to work in factories. The urban squalor, the disease, um, the lack of safety were horrendous and, and planning emerged in that context to lift people up. Now, making places better for people is still something you hear a lot about from planners, but our situation has now changed because um, infinite growth on a planet has a use-by date for making places better for people. At some stage, now it, it's making places worse for people. So planning has some ad adaption to do. The realities of the world are already starting to push planning in that direction. So I heard a, a news report, it's an anecdote, and I can't remember the local government area in Australia that it related to, but one council has given in to local pressure because of homelessness and is allowing caravans and, and tiny dwellings on, on some blocks um, because otherwise 
those people have nowhere to go and nowhere to live. So I think we're going to see more and more of that. And we see it informally after natural disasters when people live in caravans and informal dwellings because substantial periods, many some people, for a variety of reasons following natural disasters and that's they just have to do that. So as far as I can tell, planners often turn a blind eye to that because you can't put people in a worse situation after after a natural disaster event, I don't think ethically. But it's a complex space because the Planning Institute of Australia that oversees the education requirements for planners in the country only recently within the last two years or 18 months started to engage with climate change properly. There's a list of about 80 competencies the universities have to attain to be accredited by the Planning Institute of Australia to train future planners. And climate change, I think, is mentioned once uh, amongst a list of, of other things. There's two sides to planning. There's a planning that's still based, I think, in the 20th century. And there's the 21st century reality, which is going to push planning in a practical sense to do other things, mm. um, irrespective of the um, infinite growth on a, on a finite planet mentality. Now, this is a wry observation. Of all the industries, it's almost like the town urban planning industry in Australia seems the most eternally optimistic, despite the fact that all their recent legacies have generally been bungled failures, like the Fisherman's Bend in Victoria and the tram fiasco in Sydney. I don't know how they do it. How do they keep themselves so happy? Are they on the Soma drug from Brave New World or something? <laughs> <laughs> so I will say that planning is a very broad church of <laughs> all kinds of different people doing different things exactly. from different perspectives. So um, I will acknowledge that. But there's a lot of money in planning. There's mm. a lot of private consultancy film firms that do planning either big ones or very small ones. And more indirectly, governments benefit from planning in terms of revenue bases, you know, rates, bases with new developments going in and so on and so forth. So there's some very good people in planning who are planners, but there's also these kind of underlying conflicts of interest. Talking up development in the future um, could be seen as a conflict of interest, I think. It's interesting you were talking earlier about how um, councils, local councils are having to become more and more innovative in face of the rapidly changing situation. They're very much rooted in the 21st century reality, whereas state governments are increasingly trying to remove powers from local councils so they can push through their growthist agenda and overrule councils. As you talked about, we're in this, to me, it seems like this late stage neoliberalism now. We've got so many obvious limits to growth being reached. The cognitive dissonance of the growthists is like to put the foot on the accelerator and, and just take the car over the cliff and go as fast as we can. And to me, working to try and get people to think about you know a post-growth approach to planning it feels frustrating like I'm banging my head against a brick wall it's very very difficult for me to see how we are going to get any kind of systemic change in place 
prior to collapse. Where should I put my emphasis? Should I just be talking about collapse? Um, Rupert Reed says it's too late, but he says it's too late for what? You know, we don't know what's going to come after collapse and we don't know how the world's going to manifest after that. Even though I don't think we're going to reach any kind of systemic change prior to collapse, we can plant seeds. Like the retro suburbia movement that David Holmgren is involved with, and he, he wrote that great book about retro suburbia. By talking about it now, I'm hoping that we can plant these seeds so that when things go very badly wrong, and that could happen really, really soon, that people's first instinct isn't to jump into fear, that the fear that leads us to fascism. Do you think that part of preparing for collapse is about planting seeds for what comes after collapse as well as preparing for collapse? Look, my emphasis is on planning and preparing from a community perspective now for the process of collapse. So my specific interest is insurgent planning, which is a stream of planning theory and practice um, that academics have explored, um, particularly in the context of the global south and poorer communities, because um, they're already, some of them, living post-growth or degrowth lives. You know, these are, these are poor people who live on the margins um, and have to do a whole range of um, things to keep their heads above water um, where they can. So I'm very interested in that because we're going to see more and more people and more and more communities really struggling uh, as things break down. My emphasis is on now and what we can do now. Yeah. And I don't focus on what comes after or could come after, partly because, as you said, it's so unknown. Mm. One of the big unknowns is to do with the severity of climate change because there's new research out that shows, and this is by um, Professor James Hansen, who's a very experienced, well-qualified um, climate scientist, that indicates we've got possibly 10 degrees of warming already in the pipeline based on existing atmospheric CO2. Well, that's, that's human extinction. It, it is. It's, mm. it's oh, extinction of not just humans, but 99% of life on Earth. So that's sobering. That's Very. Using the word sobering is an understatement. <laughs> <You're> not, <laughs> not sure what words to use. Harrowing? In terms, in terms of that. But even if he's half wrong, yeah, you know, it's five degrees and that's still absolutely catastrophic. So I'm interested in the here and now and yeah. the planning that can be done um, to build community resilience yeah. um, on the way down. Yeah. A concern I have with focusing on what might come after is that it slips into fantasy. Planning needs some tangible knowledge to work with. Um, yeah. Now, if, if that kind of research isn't correct, <laughs> I'm sure everyone's got their fingers crossed about that. But I guess the hope is that the... The stuff that we should be doing now is also the stuff that comes after. So it's like a retro suburbia future where we work with and retrofit what we already have and look at, at minimising the use of resources and development and learning how to scale down and uh, that kind of thing. So, yeah, for me, it's it's like this is the stuff we need to be doing now. 
But if for some reason the system that we're in prevents it from happening now, there may be a chance that when it all does collapse and a new paradigm emerges, it may happen then possibly. But if it doesn't, it's still something that we should be doing now. I, I'm still working this out because parameters are changing all the time. Um, you know, a few years ago, I was, you know, into new urbanism and saying we should be building transport orientated development around railway lines and we'll be fine. But then I looked at the situation and realized that <laughs> the more urban density you build the more sprawl there is because the more they just grow the population so it was a, an awakening to get to the idea of post-growth and now i'm having to rapidly transition to the reality of collapse while dealing with the grief process it's, it's pretty full-on isn't it you, you must have gone through a whole a whole emotional roller coaster ride to get to where you are now I think for most people in the collapse space, it's an ongoing process. So it doesn't kind of finish no. for most people. You're constantly kind of cycling in and out of those different stages of grief and the emotional challenges connected with that. I think one reason why I, can't, why I have been able to step into this space, because I'm all, as, as you both know, I'm involved with an activist platform called Just Collapse. So it's a daily engagement with the idea of collapse. But for what, I think one of the reasons why I can do that to a large extent is that awareness that I had decades ago. So I've been processing this reality slowly over decades and I know there are people who it has only recently hit and that is, an, I think, a very um, challenging space to be in. Mm. Um, but we wouldn't be human if we did not feel rolling emotions around this. It's important to acknowledge that and it's important to acknowledge, reach out to other people and professional help. Definitely. Um, Definitely. If needed um, yeah. in this space, it, it's a kind of a requirement not to be alone. Absolutely, yeah. And another thing that I find really useful is that um, shared sense of purpose so connecting with other people that understand and are interested in doing positive work in this space and developing and building a collective sense of shared purpose. And for me, something like insurgent planning does that because it focuses on people um, working together um, to achieve goals, even if those goals might become less aspirational and more more about nitty-gritty reality yeah most of the um coping mechanisms to collapse you've outlined is reaching out to others and building community i guess one of the ironies that i sometimes find is that in a space of oh bloody humans especially when you read <laughs> Jared Diamond's books. It's just been a whole history, at least in the story of civilization, of people just um, failing on scale to get to this point. And so I can find it sometimes difficult to reach out to others because I kind of want to avoid people at the moment because of the whole legacy of what we've done. So I, I don't know, do you feel like that too? And is that sometimes something difficult to balance or do you find it's more of a issue of the system rather than the individuals within the system? Definitely system-based, but anger is a normal grief response and feeling angry 
trying not to take it out on other people. <laughs> it, it, it is a, a normal part of the grief process. I'm speaking for, as a non-expert on the psychology of grief, but finding things that one feels are purposeful and enjoyable. You know, many of us still have those opportunities to really enjoy a whole range of things, whether it's a bushwalk or spending time with pets or non-human gardening. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to avoid people, then mm. you do some gardening and hanging out with your chickens or something like that. Yeah, I guess it was interesting because both me and Michael have been involved in, in community projects in places where we have tried to work with people and there's been a lot of conflict, hierarchies that, that formed. And that's one of the reasons why I realised that there is a huge behavioural change aspect as well as a systemic change aspect. So it's certainly developed, opened, getting involved in communities has certainly opened the door to eco-psychology to me and working about ways that we can work with each other that our system doesn't necessarily teach in schools and that kind of thing. So that's been interesting. Yeah, something that Just Collapse recommends is making connections with pre-existing groups that might have a long history in how they run and how they operate. Mm. Because one of the challenges for creating new groups or social movements is that it's often all being invented on the fly. There's no panacea to human complexity (laughs) and social interactions. Unfortunately. that's, That's something that just collapse emphasizes. But I will go back a little bit to that point you were making, Mark, about what we can do now that might matter later. I think that um, socio-ecological justice is something that can be done now, promoted, thought about, acted on now, that might matter later yeah or at some stage very good point yeah so identifying the politics and the ethics that matter and and doing what we can in that space at the moment now collapse is a difficult issue to talk about and another difficult one is the vexed issue on population In PGAP, we invite all guests to give their unique perspective on this issue. And I think it's kind of unavoidable, invariably, in the urban planning sector, because a lot of mainstream planning is kind of building more stuff for more people. Um, You often find, you know, property developers uh, justify building on floodplains because, you know, our population is growing and yet they're lobbying for more of the same within government. So, yeah, wanted to open the doors for your uh, perspective on what is a very difficult issue sometimes to talk about. As I've already mentioned, my preferred um, framing is overshoot. And one reason I prefer that framing of overshoot is because it encompasses a whole range of problems and issues um, that we're now facing. And that it encompasses population, it encompasses consumption, biodiversity loss, microplastics, CO2 emissions as a pollution source, all these things that we're doing way too much of or we have done way too much of, all encompassed within that idea of overshoot. We're using and abusing the earth more than can be sustained. So 
I know there are people who argue that we, if we just change the systems, that the earth can support 8 billion or 10 billion or even 12 billion people. That, that stops making sense to me when we look at consumption patterns because we consume what we consume. That's, it's, it's a fact that we're consuming, particularly in the affluent West, masses of stuff. So what's to say with a higher population that that pattern wouldn't continue if the Earth allowed it to, which it won't, but, you know, hypothetically speaking. And the absolute tragedy is that we can't sustain 8 billion people in a changing climate with a collapsing ecosystem. So we have to be having candid, upfront conversations about population. But we have to acknowledge that things have been left way too long. So making deliberate choices is kind of, we've moved past that. So I came across a statistic a couple of um, days ago, which is that a quarter of a billion people on the earth are currently experiencing acute hunger. So acute hunger, not skipping breakfast or kids having to rely on, you know, school lunches to be provided for them. This is acute hunger. That's a quarter of a billion of the world's population. So for a little while we were doing really well in terms of food security and addressing hunger and the numbers of people experiencing hunger were dropping. They're now increasing. The absolute tragedy is that that will continue. And the people who are least responsible for overshoot, the least responsible for our predicament, are those that are bearing the brunt Mm. of these impacts. So anyone that's talking about increasing population, whether that's on on a global scale, has to pay attention to those trends of acute hunger because what they are saying is unacceptable, you know, bringing more, more and more people onto the planet while acute hunger is increasing and food scarcity and insecurity is increasing. It's immoral in a way. And I, I know people's choices for having children are, the, are their choices. So this is not, I'm not being prescriptive. <laughs> I'm, not, no, no. I'm not, I'm not talking about any policies or anything like that. It's just this grim reality that if people can choose, make decisions around having children, then that, that power is with them. And I, th- I think this is a kind of a conversation people just need to be realistic about because at any time it could be us facing acute hunger and I think it's just sensible to factor in, especially for, for younger people, whether in the face of that possible reality that we really want to be aiming for larger families. This knowledge of collapse is uh, one of the factors in which made me staunchly decide to be child-free whilst also respecting other people's choices. It's just I couldn't balance the the reality (laughs) and it's kind of, well, I can just about not really, but just about look after myself (laughs) and um, close friends through this, but being responsible for the next generation in this climate, both literally and um, not so literally, is is just something that I, that a path I couldn't go down once aware of the facts. Yeah, the interesting thing is, is that, as you say, um, you know, we, we mustn't be prescriptive, but 
you know, there is actually no need to be prescriptive and we mustn't be anyway. As, as we know that when, when people are sufficiently empowered and have access to, to vital services and education, generally birth rates go down. And from a collapse perspective, I always say that, that no one in these times should be carrying an unwanted child. No one should be having an unwanted pregnancy. At the very least, every pregnancy needs to be planned. And, and today, up to 50% of pregnancies worldwide are unplanned. So it really is just a matter of getting out of the way of the population control that is the pronatalism, the growing pronatalism that is another sign of this late stage neoliberalism where there's this kind of panic, people pressing the panic button that populations in Japan and China are starting to reduce. And I think for me, it's like, well, let's change the narrative of saying, well, that's actually a really good thing because that's a sign that, that humans are making choices and population reduction fits in nicely with the, the whole approach we need to be taking, which is scaling right down in face of collapse. I think it's um, been very damaging that because some early population discussions um, were highly problematic and racist and imperialist, that whenever this topic is raised, or frequently when it's raised, is that the term eco-fascist gets bandied around. But there is a completely rational, logical and participatory and democratic conversation or range of conversations to be had in this area that should not be closed down. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that sometimes people will jump in and use the eco-fascist label without listening to see whether or not that democratic progressive approach is being taken because obviously there's nothing eco-fascist about empowering people to make informed choices about how many children they should have. In fact, it's the, the fascist thing is the, is the pro-natalist pressures that people like Elon Musk are pushing that's trying to stand in the way of that. Yeah, and it's highly problematic to be promoting a future that's 10 or 12 billion people without having addressed climate change food scarcity, ecosystem collapse, all the things that we're struggling with. You, you just shouldn't, you can't do it. It's immoral. Yeah, it's a bit of a gamble, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kate, for coming on to PGAP. It's been a pleasure to have you on and um, really appreciated your comments on TPR and your contributions and always good to put a face to a social media post and uh, have a good to and fro conversation. If people would like to follow your work, uh, where can they go and how can they say hi? And I know you brought up Just Collapse, so if people want to dip their toes further into a Just Collapse, um, what can they do? Well, yes, you can connect with Just Collapse online, um, on the web, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. But I'm actually um, looking for, I'm going to do a, a bit of a, Promo, I'm looking for new honours and PhD students who are interested in doing some critical exploratory thinking in the collapse um, space. So 
um, in January I'll, I'll be looking for people. If anyone's interested, <laughs> contact me through the University of Tasmania. I won't be able to get back to you until January, but yes, if you're, if you're interested, because we're building a, te- a little team of people at UTAS. So there are other universities looking at existential risk and human extinction, including um, Cambridge and Stanford. We're trying to build a bit of a team at UTAS as well. Great. That sounds fantastic. Very, very interesting times and lots to keep you busy. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But thank you, Michael and Mark. That was a a great conversation. Thank you. Really, really enjoyed that. And it was very important conversation to have. Thank you so much. You are listening to Postgrowth Australia podcast, the podcast where better will always be better than bigger. And uh, we had the absolute delight of talking to Kate Booth, um, a professor of urban planning and also an advocate in the within the Just Collapse movement. And for me, it was really, really fascinating to have urban planning and collapse all in the same space and how they interact and how Kate navigates through that. Now, Mark, as an urban planner, I will give you the talking stick for a couple of minutes to uh, <laughs> give us some key summaries of um, how you found that interview. <laughs> yeah, no, it was um, a great interview and it's something that I really needed to hear as a planner, it's very interesting because a lot of environmental planning, as we discussed, is still based very much around growth. You know, that the YIMBY movement, for example, the new Yes in My Backyard movement that's been growing recently, it has this idea that if we just build more and more houses, that somehow that will solve the problem. And, and that's right, but only within the context of scaling down and creating an economic system that doesn't demand ever-increasing growth. Otherwise, we'll always be chasing our tails, especially when our economic system is so reliant upon property prices going up. So they'll always make sure that demand is kept ahead of supply. So it's very interesting. You know, you you listen to Kate and then you go into the world of so-called sustainable planning and you think, oh, crikey, you know, we're worlds apart. And when you look at what's going on in the world, and since we last spoke, we last had a podcast, things have got obviously worse. And I'm very nervous about what Australia faces in the future. Does it get worse every time we launch an episode, does it? It's not us, is it? I really hope not. <laughs> Don't give me an existential crisis. <laughs> I just want to feel in control again. <laughs> well, quite. There is that. But for me, for me, activism now, um, understanding that collapse is a very real part of the reality we're facing. For me, activism is all about uh, processes. Uh, It's not about being invested in outcomes anymore. It's about being invested in in processes in this present moment. Even if the outcome looks bleak, we'll always, 
always try and do what, what feels right in this present moment because it is quite depressing thinking about collapse, but it is something, I think by thinking about it now, it will help my activism as things get worse. It will help me to stay in the game by accepting the worst case scenario and understanding that no matter how bleak things come, we must never succumb to the behaviours and attitudes that led us into this. You, you know, I went into this interview and sorry, just have to get the joke out, but maybe urban planning and collapsing isn't as distinct as we're led to believe. I mean, just given all the high rises they're building at the moment that are falling over or bursting into flames. Yeah, I mean, when you think about the environmental impact of development, it's something like 38% of emissions, I might be a little out there, but it's like 38% 30, of emissions go into development. We spent the last 20 years burning up 38% of emissions into urban sprawl and generally low standard development. Low standard, low robust housing stock. We've burnt off all of our resources and we've taken ourselves to the precipice through the worst kind of development and planning and we're kind of out of resources and out of emissions now to, to build our way out of this. We're going to have to really embrace the retro suburbia movement and of course in the first season you interviewed David Holmgren and really look at ways as how we can work with what we've got but Obviously, there's still scope to build more and redevelop, but I don't know for how much longer we can do that. But all of the redevelopment we do from here on does need to be medium density, affordable public housing. We need to focus on the brownfield sites first, the old industrial sites, and we need to focus on replacing our worst housing stock um, as a priority, the fibro, the rundown really preserve our most robust stock uh, for the future through the retro suburbia model. Now, during the interview, I did say a couple of nasty words about urban planners, and I'd just like to say, um, hashtag not all urban planners. I know there are some really good ones out there, so I just want to give a kudos to the ones who are making a difference and how very difficult it is to do so in this sticky little matrix that we live in. Sticky little matrix, yes, very, very true. And again, it's always interesting to talk to people from the population perspective, and I think, again, that, that Kate uh, frames it very well as being an issue of overshoots, and to look at it from that perspective, and overshoots, of course, includes everything from the extraordinarily high per capita emissions of the global north all the way through to... Uh, high populations but I think for me at the very least is every single person on this planet should be able to have the access to the education and the healthcare to be able to make informed choices but you know even if we do everything right and every person has access to all of those services we're not going to see a massive decline in population in the decades that we have to decades, years, months, I don't know, to turn this around. Milliseconds. Milliseconds. 
So really for me, <laughs> population is about the systemic change by embracing a society that can acknowledge and embrace stabilizing populations and lowering populations. We better create the regenerative systems that crucially allow us to reduce our per capita emissions. And of course, the onus is on the so-called developed world to get our emissions down as quickly as possible. And we have to lead the way. We can't point to China and India and say, you know, what's the point? Because their emissions are higher than ours. We're the ones that created this industrialized society and sold it to the rest of the world. And we, the rich, the 10%, have to take upon ourselves to show the way and reduce our emissions, create that systemic change to some form of post-grad society that also incorporates embracing population stabilization and decline as well. So yeah, so a cheerful episode, but um, well, it's one on collapse. So you know, yeah. we're we're hardly going to be giggles per minute here. The main takeaway from this is by embracing the worst case scenario now and understanding that that might happen will allow us to process our grief in a way that we can continue to be activists until the end so that we don't hit a wall of massive grief further down the track when things become really, really bleak. And tying it back to our um, intro where we talked about that amazing bushwalk we did with Uncle Larry, how now it's, it's more important than ever that we we actually find a space to reconnect out of mind and to reconnect to nature in a place where we don't have to even think about anything except just being present in nature and really embracing and feeling that space. Because as long as there is nature around and there are trees and there are birds and there's something we can walk to and connect to, that will carry us through whatever we face. Yeah. And in the meantime, we chop wood and carry water. Yeah. And uh, and lovely listeners, if you'd like to chop some of the wood, regenerate some of the wood <laughs> and uh, carry some of the water for us, then definitely share this episode and PGAP with your friends, networks, family, enemies, whoever. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or one's favourite podcast platform. A little tidbit of just <laughs> good news to, to end this episode on a half smile. PGAP has been accepted by New Economy Network Australia to participate at their conference in Canberra in mid-November of this year. That's fantastic news. Congratulations. So I will be presenting on behalf of SPA. You will. On the discussion paper we've written on the housing crisis that I co-authored with Dr Jane O'Sullivan. And PGAP will be behind the scenes and recording live at the NINA conference. So that will be a collage of attendees, presenters, live interviews of workshops all come together in one uh, mega episode that we can all listen after the fact in case you didn't make it. <laughs> Absolutely. And Nina is a, a 
great organisation, definitely worth supporting and definitely worth putting the energy into. So good, we even interviewed the convener, Dr. Michelle Maloney, twice. Yeah, in twice. Gap history. There so there you go, there's kudos. Um, all right, well, thank you so much, Mark, and I'll see you next time. Thank you, see you next time. And until then? Until then. <laughs>